Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I am the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Tonight we're going to start a study of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And probably, as we all know, the Apostle Paul was one of those great early Christians who God God called and God chose and God used to really propagate the gospel throughout uh, throughout the known world of, of his day. Paul was a very committed Jewish believer. He was in leadership and in, in the Jewish faith. And he was so hostile towards Christ and towards those who followed Jesus that he was persecuting them and even, you know, even seeking to put some of them to death. And on one trip, when he was going to try to arrest believers, Jesus chooses him. Actually, I guess God had chosen him a long time ago, but God meets him, blinds him, speaks to him. Uh, converts him. Paul uh, Paul becomes a believer and he begins to follow Jesus. And Jesus chooses him to be his vessel to take the good news to uh, to the Gentile world, to the non-Jewish world. And so Paul would uh, become a great missionary to the non-Jewish Jewish world. And he would make a, a number of missionary trips. Uh, his first trip would be with a fellow by the name of Barnabas, and they would plant several churches in what we call Turkey today. And uh, then he would come back home, and they would be planning to go on another trip. But uh, Paul and Barnabas would separate because of a, a dispute over a young man named John Mark. Barnabas wanted to give John Mark a, a second chance where he'd failed on their first trip, and Paul wasn't willing. And so Paul and Barnabas goes their separate ways, and. Barnabas takes John Mark and Paul takes Silas and so they head out on a second missionary journey <clears throat> Paul does and uh, he travels uh, exactly maybe the opposite way in which he went the first time and he goes back to some of these churches that he's planted and and he's planning on going north into Turkey but God doesn't permit him to do that whether that's circumstantially doesn't permit him or tells him not to go you know not really sure but he has a dream that some believers over in Macedonia, which is across, I believe, the Aegean Sea, but I'm not sure what body of water separates Turkey from Greece, but uh, he goes over to Macedonia, and he first comes to the city of Philippi, and, uh, you know, he he plants a church in Philippi. It becomes a, a very dear church to him. They're one of the few churches that supported him financially through throughout the years to come. And uh, he leaves Philippi. Uh, he has some problems there. He's arrested and beaten, uh, but eventually he's released. And he travels from there uh, down south in Macedonia, and he arrives at the city of Thessalonica, or often called Thessaloniki. Now, Thessalonica was founded around 350 BC by the Macedon king uh, Cassandras. And uh, he named the city after his wife, Thessaloniki. And Thessaloniki was Alexander the Great's half-sister. So you can see, you know, the connection to leadership, leadership there in Greece. 
Uh, Thessalonica would be like an autonomous part of the kingdom of Macedon up, up until 168 BC when when Rome conquered you know Greece and, and made that part of the world part of the Roman Empire and then the city became part of the Roman Empire 168 BC and it became a really important part of the Roman Empire because it was uh, it was situated on some trade routes and so Thessalonica was a, a great trade commerce city there between Europe and Asia. Now, Thessalonica would eventually become the capital of a Roman province uh, or the Roman district there in 146 uh, BC. It was, like I said, a major city in the Roman Empire. It uh, it housed an amphitheater where they had, you know, we, we think of the gladiators just fighting in, in Rome, but they fought in Thessalonica as well as entertainment for the citizens. But this was just a, this was just a great city. And so Paul comes to that city, and tonight I thought what we'd do is we would start by looking at the book of Acts and Paul's arrival at, at the city of Thessalonica. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 17, and let me begin to read. With verse 1, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews there. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths, reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, let me go back and just before I before I continue on and just say, let me, let me change that word Christ to Messiah. So he went uh, on three consecutive Sabbaths to the synagogue where he explained and gave evidence that the Messiah had to suffer and to rise again from the dead. And he was saying to them, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Now the word Christ we know is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed king. And, but this is a Jewish context. And one of the things I want you to notice is, you know, Paul's custom of always starting with the Jews. He would start with the Jews because, number one, you know, Jesus first went to the Jews. But he would start with the Jews because they had context for his message. They, they understood who the Messiah was. They understood who, the, who Yahweh was, the God of, the God of Israel. And so they had context, and so he would go to them, first of all, and present the message that Messiah had come. I also want you to notice his strategy. His strategy was twofold. He would begin by taking the scriptures, that would be the Old Testament, and from the Old Testament, he would explain to the Jews how they had a wrong concept of what Messiah was supposed to do and be. They thought Messiah was going to overthrow Rome and be this... this, uh, great strategic military leader, well, Paul would take uh, the Old Testament, he would seek to show them that the Messiah had to die and uh, and that he would rise again. So he would take the Old Testament and he would show them that. Most likely he used things like Isaiah 53. He probably used uh, the book of Daniel. And once he had shown them from the scriptures that Messiah had to die and rise again, then his strategy was to present to them Jesus as the fulfillment of what God had promised. And so we read that. We read that's what he did at Thessalonica. For three consecutive weeks, he met with the Jews in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he explained to them from the scriptures how Messiah had to die and rise, and how Jesus was that Messiah. So verse 4 tells us of the results. 
And it says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. Now you notice that not too many Jews believed. It says some of them were persuaded, but it says it, it makes a point of of, of uh, juxtaposing that to the number of God-fearing Greeks that believe. It says a large number of God-fearing Greeks believed, and a number of leading women. Now these God-fearing Greeks, these are Gentiles, these are, are Grecian people who are not Jews, but yet they're in the synagogue. Why are they in the synagogue? Because they have respect. They believe. They believe in the God Yahweh. They believe in the God of, of Israel. So they're there as uh, I think proselytes is is the word that's used. I mean, they're they're wanting to follow the God of Israel. And so when Paul presents his message, many many of them believe. Uh, some of the Jews believe, and some of the leading ladies of the city believe. Now the sitting the the leading ladies are most likely the wives of. Uh, of some of the rulers of the city, or maybe maybe the women themselves were the leaders. So back to the text, verse 5, it says, But the Jews becoming jealous and talk, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have, who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So the Jews, who in this case become jealous, are you know, presumably the leadership of the synagogue. They're, they're the Jewish leaders. And that doesn't mean that there's not some really, you know, zealous Jews who join in this. But uh, they are jealous because they cannot win in the court of ideas. When, when Paul presents his truth, they cannot refute it. And people are following Paul and leaving them. And they become jealous. So what do they do? They go and stir up a bunch of uh, rebel rousers, people who probably have no scruples. They get them. They kind of turn the city upside down. They go to Jason's house to uh, try to find Paul and Silas, but they they can't find them. They're not there. So it says they drag out Jason before the authorities and accuse them of basically incite, inciting a riot in the city. They're, they're blaming Jason for what they've they've caused, and they, they put it back on Paul and Silas as the ones who are turning the world upside upside down. So we might want to ask the question, who is this Jason guy? Well, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about him, but it's obviously it's obvious that he has shown hospitality to Paul and Silas, and they're staying with him. Uh, was he a believer? I, I would imagine that he has become a believer in the Lord Jesus himself. It's interesting to note their tactics. You know, it, we, we do this a lot. When we can't win in the court of ideas, we, we uh, resort to other means to try to win. And sometimes that's violence or terrorism like we see here, uh, basically trying to terrorize the people into not following Jesus. Uh, I, I notice they use they use the civil authorities for their case as well when they can't when they can't win. Verse 10 says the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Well, wherever Paul and Silas were that day, they they were not 
caught up in all of this. And so later that night, uh, you know, the people that are following Jesus, they sneak Paul and, and Silas out, out of the city and they send them on to, uh, they send them on to Berea. Now, uh, Berea is about 45 miles from, uh, from Thessalonica. So they travel about 45 miles, but this is, you got to remember, this is, uh, long before, uh, cell phones and all of that. And, and so the people of Thessalonica have no idea where Paul and Silas have gone. So Paul arrives in Berea and he follows his same strategy. He goes to the synagogue and he did the twofold thing. I'm sure he showed them from the scriptures how Jesus, uh, excuse me, how the Messiah was to die and rise again. And then he shows them how Jesus is the is the promised Messiah. And, and there's a different response in Berea. So in verse 11, it says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures, that'd be the Old Testament, daily, to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. And so the Bereans, unlike the Thessalonicans, they, they searched the scriptures themselves. They, they looked into the Old Testament and they said, Is what Paul's saying true? And they determined that it was. And it says many of the Berean Jewish folks believed along with a lot of, you know, uh, our number of Greek, prominent Greek men and women. So again, a number of those in leadership uh, in the city of Berea believed. And this is one of, uh, I think this is one of my favorite passages uh, of scripture. Just, I don't don't know why, because it says they, they were more noble minded. They searched the scriptures and undoubtedly, listen to everybody, we should search the scriptures to see whether the things that we've been taught are being taught are indeed what the word of God is, is teaching. Verse 13 in, in the book of Acts 17, it says, but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon uh, as possible, they left. Now, you know, we, know, we don't know how long they were in Berea uh, before the Thessalonians got word that that's where they were. I mean, it could have been a few weeks. It could have been a few months even uh, that they were in Berea. But eventually the word did get back to Thessalonica that Paul and Silas were there and they were preaching. And so the Thessalonican Jews, who obviously still had such anger towards them. I mean, they made the trek, the 45-mile trek up there to try to dislodge them from Berea. And of course, they do succeed. Paul moves on. Some of the folks take Paul and and they carry him on to Athens, uh, Greece. And it says uh, Paul, I mean, he says, excuse me, says Silas and Timothy uh, stay behind. Now, this is the first time tonight, anyway, that we've talked about Timothy. Timothy was a young man that uh, Paul and Silas met early on on in this journey. They met him in one of the towns where Paul and Barnabas had planted a church earlier on the first missionary trip. And and Timothy just, you know, he had a heart for God. You remember he had Jewish mom and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, and his father was a, a Gentile or Greek. 
And uh, But Timothy obviously loved the Lord, and Timothy would go on to become one of Paul's you know, greatest protégés. Paul would often call him his son in the faith. There are two books in our New Testament written to this Timothy by Paul. He becomes a pastor of the church at Ephesus, just a, a very influential young man in the, uh, in the fledgling kingdom of God church that is is forming so he's with them as well we read that here in in verse 15 he and silas they stay behind and uh, when the folks traveling with paul leave him in athens they have the message tell silas and timothy to come to me as soon as possible so paul goes on to athens and uh, you'll remember that he you know he gets to make the appearance before the philosophers and uh, the the philosophical leadership, the theological leadership there in, uh, in, in Athens at the Areopagus. And, uh, but, but his mission probably wasn't all that successful in Athens. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15, uh, he alludes to that. He also, 1 Thessalonians will tell us this, chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, tells us that, you know, Paul wanted numerous times to return to Thessalonica, but it just never worked out for him, uh, him to do that. After an absence of several months, um, Paul and Silas have now joined them. They've gone on to to Corinth, where Paul plants uh, the church at Corinth. And of course, there's a couple of letters written to them uh, at the at Corinth. But while he's there, um, he just really can't stand it. He wants to know what's happening back in Thessalonica. And uh, so he sends Timothy back there. And when he gets there, some of the things that Timothy discovers about the church at Thessalonica is that they've uh, they've had to endure a lot of tribulation. Uh, they they have concerns about obviously Paul talked to them about the return of Jesus as we'll see in our study, and they have concerns. But what about people that die? We've had some people die since you left, and what about them? You know, in the return of Jesus, how does that work out? So they have questions about that. Um, they have questions about leadership, and so Timothy kind of assimilates all these questions, learns how they're doing, what's happened, and he returns uh, to Corinth, where again Paul. Paul has been situated, you know, since leaving there and going to Athens. He's been at Corinth. He comes back there and he learns about Timothy's visit. He hears all the things that Timothy has to say about the persecution they've endured. Um, he hears that they are still standing f- strong uh, in their faith. First Thessalonians chapter 3, first few verses. And... Um, so Paul now writes the letter of First Thessalonians that we're going to begin to study tonight. He writes this letter in response to Timothy's return visit from seeing them. So he's going to try to answer some of their questions. He wants to be an encouragement to them, as you'll see, in the midst of their uh, persecution and distress. And uh, he's also uh, just really proud of them, and that'll come out in, uh, in the letter as we study it. Uh, one more historical note before we actually turn our attention to the letter itself, and and that is that for centuries the church at Thessalonica would remain one of uh, one of Christianity's strong points, strong holes. It would become known as the Orthodox city because they held to Jesus and they held to uh, to His word. 
So with that context now, let's actually turn our attention to the letter. And again, just one more time, this is a letter that Paul, after having founded the church, been away for a number of months, has sent Timothy back. He's discovered some things, that Timothy discovered some things, has come back to Paul, and now has told him the things that, that he's learned. And Paul writes this letter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. So Paul and Silas and Barnabas, um, excuse me, Paul, Silas, and Timothy now, Paul's writing this letter and he's saying this is coming, you know, from uh, from the three of us. And uh and so he writes them, and, and he, he has a typical greeting here. This is his typical greeting to the church uh, at Thessalonica. He says, grace to you and peace. In fact, Paul would use this greeting some 13 times in his letters. You know, the question we, we might want to, you know, delve into just a little bit is, what, what does Paul wish for them? What does he desire for them? Uh, he says here, grace and, and peace. And so what he's saying, the verb is left out, but it's obvious what he means. I, I desire for you to experience grace and peace. And, you know, and I guess we don't know for sure exactly what Paul meant by those two words, but but I'd like to suggest that one of the things that God, I mean, that Paul desired for them is for them to experience the joy, the delight, the sweetness of knowing Jesus and knowing God and loving God and walking with God. He, he desired for them to experience uh, the joy of the Lord. Um, somebody... Somebody has suggested that grace also can mean, you know, the power of God. You know, grace is, is God's enabling power. Uh, and so some folks have said, God, you know, Paul wishes them to experience God's enabling power in their lives to to uh, to live out the Christian life. And, and let's just be honest, Paul could mean both of those things in this greeting. Both of those would be wonderful things that Paul desires for, for the Thessalonians and other believers to whom he writes. And he also says peace. He desires for them to experience peace. And, uh, you know, I can't help but think that Paul is talking about tranquility, security, and safety. I mean, we as Western American Christians, uh, you know, we have known both grace and peace in our situation, you know, all of our lives. Uh, our world has been an anomaly. Our Western American world has been an anomaly as far as the church is concerned throughout the millennia. The church has been persecuted. But in America, we have, you know, we have found a home and, and the church has flourished in peace and tranquility. Um that's not been so for, for most believers around the world. And so Paul could be wishing them, I desire for you guys to experience tranquility and peace in your life. Um, but again, somebody else has suggested maybe he means inner peace. I want y'all to experience the inner peace of knowing God, the peace that, that you know, death uh, you know, the terror of death doesn't have to overtake you because you know the peace of God and, and the promise of the resurrection uh, or just the peace in the midst of, of suffering, this this peace that only God can can give you when your life's in turmoil. So, you know, exactly which of those things he meant, you know, let's just say he, meant, he means all of that to them. And so he says in verse 2, we always thank God for all of you making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, Paul was so thankful for these Thessalonican believers. And, uh, and he says, I thank God for you always. In other words, they were... You know, there was just something about them. He was just so grateful to God that they had been involved in his life or he had been involved in their life. And and so he said, "I, I constantly thank God for you. And then he says, and, and I pray for you. I make mention of you guys to, to God in my prayers. And then he says, what I, what I do when I make mention of you to the Lord, he says, I, I remind the Father of your work produced by faith and your labor motivated by, by love. So here's what Paul says he, he makes mention of and he thinks of when it comes to you know, his relationship with them. He, he thinks of their service, their ministry, the, the outworkings of their life. And, and he says the works of their life are motivated, are motivated by two things. They're motivated by faith. He says, your, your work produced by faith and your labor motivated by love. So faith and love motivate their service and their ministry. So here, here's a statement I want to make. It's a propositional statement of truth, I believe. You know, if faith is operational in your life, you will serve, you will work, you will minister. You, you, will, you will be about the works of God if faith is operational in your life. And the second propositional statement I would make, which is really similar to that, is that... Um, if, if you love the Lord Jesus and others, if the love of Jesus or love for Jesus, love of Jesus is operational in your life, then you will serve, work, and, and, and minister. And, and if I could just say that in the negative, it's like this. If, if, if your life is not one of service and loving and following Jesus and serving God and working for God and working for the kingdom of God, then, then I would question whether or not you know, you have faith and whether or not you love God and you have the love of God at work in you if your life is not characterized by service and work and, and just being involved in the things of God. You know, we we as um, evangelical Christians, you know, we have so desired to separate justification from works. And if you don't know what I mean by that, by justification, I mean that we are made right with God. We're forgiven of our sins. We're justified before God, not by our what we do, but by faith in Christ, by what Christ did and Christ alone did. We so want to protect that truth that we somehow have just, you know, cut off works and said works are not a part of it at all. And uh, and we're not saved by works, but we cannot be saved and not work at some level. And, you know, you say, well, how much do you have to work, Jimmy, to that proves you really are? And I mean, that's not my job. That's God's job to judge, you know, where works and, you know, how 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 works will be seen from our faith, but you cannot have faith. You cannot have love without, um, without there being works, without there being this evidence of service and ministry in, in your life. And so the, the apostle James would, uh, or the brother of Jesus, the, I guess, I guess he was an apostle. I mean, he wasn't one of the 12, but I guess he was an apostle, but you know, he was the one that wrote and he said, listen, if you say you have faith without your works, you're just deceived. I'll show you my faith by my works because you cannot separate them. They're like hand in glove. They're like two sides of the same coin. 
In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In Ephesians 2.10, uh, another familiar verse, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared that we should walk in them. Hebrews 13.16 do not, uh, do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. And by the way, all of you listening to my voice, you, you are the rich that he would be speaking of here. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to serve, ready to share, excuse me, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so you see, you know, there, there, there is no, there is no separation between faith and works. We, we're saved by faith and faith alone. But but faith never remains alone. I know it's cliche-ish, but faith never remains alone. Faith works. So one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, what, what are the works that Paul has in mind here? When he says, you know, when I'm praying and I'm thanking God for you and I'm remembering God before you, I'm remembering, you know, your works that were motivated by your faith and your works that were motivated by your love. What, what, what are those works? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, which I just read you a second ago, he says about those that are rich, he said to be good and good, uh, there to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So at least in part, you know, when Paul's writing Timothy, he says the good works are that we should care for the poor, that we should share our abundance. Um, we should just really care about, uh, I think, about other people. And uh, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells this parable. You're probably very familiar with it, but let me just read it. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, uh, then he will sit on his glorious th throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by, blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he says this. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. And I was sick and you visited me in prison and when I was in prison you came to me and the righteous will answer and say Lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you and the king will answer truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers you you did it to me and uh, and so you know if we just take what Jesus said there know the works that God desires for us to do the works that they were doing were I mean they were caring for others in need and and they were focused on meeting the needs of, of others uh, in love and those are the works that God desires for us to do we need to be people who are about caring for others loving others serving others we, we need to uh, you know really have our mind set on changing this world for for the better you know this is something that's become important to me um recently but 
You know, the first mandate that God gave us was to go and exercise dominion over the world. He told Adam and Eve, he said, go, you know, you are, you are my, you are my rulers of this world. You're to go and, and bring about my will in the world. You're to subdue the world and, and rule the world in my name. And, you know, that, that hasn't gone away. That, that is still God's desire for us. And we should be seeking to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth uh, by how we live as followers of Jesus. And so the good works are really, I think, works of, of caring for the poor, caring for those in need. When people are hurting, we're, we're there for them. And Hebrews 10.24, which, you know, we quote quite often about being involved on a Sunday morning. It says, and let us consider how to, st- uh, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but all the more encouraging one another. And so we talk about how we need to, you know, meet on Sundays and all. But it really hit me, that first part, we need to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So, you know, as a believer, I should be trying to motivate you to do the good works that God desires for you. And you should be trying to help me also do the good works that God has for me. Let's go back to Paul's uh, statement to them. He said, when he's remembering them before God, he remembers their their work of faith, their labor of love. And, uh, And then he says that uh, he says, and I remember your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he reminds God of their endurance, of their perseverance in the midst of, you know, suffering. <clears throat> and they, they really were persecuted, as we'll see in, as we go along in this um, in this study. But they endured. And why did they endure? Well, it says they endured because of their hope in Jesus and so, you know, I want to ask you this question tonight. What, what is your hope in Jesus? In other words, what, what is your hope that Jesus gives you? What is the hope that you have that would motivate you to endure in following, in following Jesus? And there may be a lot of answers that we could have, we could bring to that question. But, you know, I want to tell you how I would have answered, and I want to tell you how I would answer it today. I would have said in the past that my hope in Jesus is that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm going to be with God in heaven. That would have been my hope, to go to heaven one day and be with him and his kingdom there. But today I'd say to you, my hope is is not so much about going to heaven one day to be with God, but my hope is now that God is going to raise me back to life, that he's going to restore my life and I will live again. And my hope in Jesus, and the reason I endure, in part at least, is because I hope that, you know, my father who has died and my son who has died, they will live again and I will see them and we will be together forever in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing to earth where he will reign as king one day. And he'll rule over me and he'll rule over all those who love him. And the world will be redeemed by the Lord Jesus. And and this is going to be for all who put their faith in him. And yet though they die, yet shall they live. And so that is my hope today. What what is your hope in Jesus? What, What are you hoping? What hope for the future does Jesus bring to your life that that will enable you to endure? All right, that brings us to uh, the end of our study for tonight. We uh, ended at verse 3. We'll pick up with uh, chapter 1, verse 4 next week. But one of the questions, if uh, if you're listening to this and planning on coming the fall this coming Tuesday, 
uh, Wednesday night, excuse me, uh, one of the questions I want you to be considering is, is this. If indeed we, when we die, we go to heaven and we're with our loved ones and we're walking on streets of gold and we're with the Lord Jesus and we're dwelling in his father's house where he's prepared a place for us there and we're dwelling there so here's the question that we we're asking ourselves this week that we're going to talk about at the beginning of of our gathering next wednesday night what what is the reason for the resurrection from the dead later on why why is the resurrection important in fact why why is the resurrection from the dead even necessary if all of us, you know, when we die, all those who have gone before us are already in the presence of God, dwelling in the Father's house. Why is the resurrection uh, important? Why does the New Testament put such a premium on it? All right. See you next Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing here locally in Surrey. Be blessed.